0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight Segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping medical treatments today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I am your host, Gustavo Carrizo, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Joe Berrelli. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Doberstein. Steve has had a long career leading research groups at a number of biotech companies. Today is the founder and CEO of Cahili Holo Consulting, based in San Francisco, that supports biotech enterprises and early-stage founders. Before his current venture, he worked for several years in Nectar Therapeutics, a company that he joined in 2010 as senior vice president and chief scientific officer to lead all aspects of discovery research. During his tenure with the company, he has been responsible for all R&D efforts supervising more than 300 scientists, physicians, and support personnel. Prior to joining Nectar, he served as Vice President of Research at Soma, a monoclonal antibody discovery and development company, where he led the discovery and development of multiple antibody drug candidates from discovery through non-clinical safety, translational medicine, and PKPD. Prior to that, he served as Vice President of Research at Five Prime Therapeutics, a protein and antibody discovery and development company, and Senkor, a leader in protein engineering. He also held senior leadership positions at Exelixis. He received his PhD from the Biochemistry, Cell, and Molecular Biology program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and completed his postdoctoral work at UC Berkeley. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very excited to have you.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: You have a very, very broad career. Uh, it's amazing to see how many things you have been involved and regarding that, we really want to ask you, first of all, um, to give us, a, you know, an overview of your experience, and mainly thinking about, you know, your long history in, in management of research programs in general in, in the biotech space.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I um, uh, went into biotech, um, I guess, uh, certainly over twenty-five years ago, and um, I, I, I made that decision. Um, you know, I, I went to graduate school at Hopkins and I joined the laboratory of Dr. Tom Pollard, who at the time was the chairman of the cell biology uh, uh, department uh, at the medical school. And my plan initially was, well, I'll, I'll go and get a Ph.D. and I'll go into biotechnology because I'm a, I was trained as a chemical engineer and it seemed like a natural fit for my uh, for my interest. And then during my graduate work and eventually my postdoc with uh, Corey Goodman uh, at UC Berkeley, I became uh enamored of the idea that maybe I should go into academia instead. That's an obvious thing. We get a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it's the it, it's, it's what we're all guided towards as, uh, as students and as postdocs. It's the example that we see are all the assistant professors and professors around us. So I went through that whole process of uh, uh, academic job interviews and those sorts of things uh, and had a couple of offers. And then at the last minute, I thought, you know, it, it, every time I read an article, in the general scientific literature and science or nature or whatever, that really is exciting and is outside of my rather narrow field that I was studying at the time. Uh, It's always from a company and it's always got a hundred authors on it. And there's, you know, obviously a big effort that has gone on for several years with lots of people. And it made me really question what I was thinking about academia, that, you know, would I really thrive, me personally, would I thrive best in a, a, a larger organization where I could influence more, a broader set of people, uh, or in a small laboratory where I could focus on projects that I was most curious about. And I eventually, uh, my advisor, my postdoc advisor, Corey Goodman, was very influential in persuading me to go into biotech. He he said, look, if, if I were at in the early stages of my career now, I'd definitely go into biotech um you know it's it's where a lot of really interesting science is happening and as long as you're not driven by a specific thing that you're really driven to solve personally driven to solve um you know that's that's more what uh the academic life is like so if you can be broad-based and think about medicines and treating patients and and uh, be broadly interested that'd be really helpful so that's what brought me into biotech my early career was at exelixis pharmaceuticals and. Um, you know, there I worked primarily on small molecule drug discovery and um, and genomics. And I eventually, at the time, it was the early stages of the human genome project. You know, the the the, the initial project had just been finished. Um, and it turns out that the idea of enumerating all the possible drug targets turns out to not be that valuable. You have to actually know what they do. I, I think we we all realize this now. This was a uh, you know twenty years ago, but um, so I got mostly interested in the idea of proteins as drugs and how do we take proteins that are encoded in the genome where they're not encoded to be drugs of course they're encoded in the genome to maintain homeostasis and control the immune system and things like that but they're not they're not there to be medicines and so I got interested in the idea of can we engineer proteins to be medicines can we take proteins out of the genome discover new ones, figure out what their functions are, and then change those functions in a subtle way that makes them better medicines. And that's been the theme of my later, the the later part of my career uh, at every company I've been at. And, you know, as you pointed out, I bounced around from company to company. Some of those were personal, uh, you know, location decisions, and things like that, like we all make. Um, But I was very lucky to have a bunch of mentors early on who kind of taught me mostly what to do but to a certain extent what not to do right you take lessons away from everybody uh, that you you brush up against and that allowed me to finally uh you know end the operational part of my career at nectar therapeutics where i was for about 10 years and um there i got more involved in clinical developments and in management of very large groups of people and so i've i've had the the, the luxury of seeing um uh you know the the commercial sector science from very small groups of 10, 15 people up to large groups of two or three hundred people and that's been been really rewarding for me.
0: So you said right I mean I'm sure that just having maybe 10 people to 300 people is a big big jump and you know from your academia academic um, training and everything like have you been getting those management um, training at all something that you taught yourself or yeah I mean what what defines that you then were successful in that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, certainly those skills you don't learn those skills in in the laboratory in graduate school. You learn how to uh, how to operate the equipment and how to design a good experiment and how to give a talk, which is an important aspect of all of this, of course. How to how to communicate. Um, but for me, you know, I think I was lucky that early in my career, before I went to graduate school, I spent four or five years uh, working out in the in the DuPont company as a chemical engineer. That allowed me to kind of see how management worked and how people influenced other people to, to, to do what needed to be done. And I've always been the kind of person who enjoyed working as part of a team. And that's a, a fundamental question, I think, that individual scientists need to be aware of, is would you rather work by yourself or would you rather work in a team? There's not a, good, there's not a right answer and there's not a better answer to that. Um, because, you know, as, as everybody finds out, if you're successful in managing groups in biotech, that's a double-edged sword. It means that you get to influence more people, and it really is influencing. It's not telling them what to do. That's not how it works, right? You're, you're, you're trying to influence them because they're all scientists, right? I mean, um, so you get to influence more people, but it means you're you're further removed from the actual experiments. Like by the time you get to be, by the time I was the head of R and D at Nectar. Um, You know, there were 10 or 15 people in research who knew about a discovery before I got to hear about it. You know, everybody had gotten to think about it and add their little piece to it and all that kind of stuff. Um, So you never really get any more the eureka moment of, oh, holy cow, that's amazing. I mean, you get it, but it's removed by a couple of generally a week or two and a bunch of people in between. And that's an interesting um, trade-off that we all have to decide whether to make or not. But for me, I didn't ever receive, until late in my career, I didn't receive any formal training in management. Um, it's just the kind of thing that, uh, you know, you treat people the way that you would want to be treated if you were in their position. Empathy is very important. I think you can learn a lot by watching Ted Lasso about how to manage people. So uh, and that's true in biotech as well as uh, as uh, football.
2: So I'm glad we got our first Ted Lasso reference on the podcast here. Uh, <laughs> I really I really like the way that you describe uh, sort of reading papers at that very crucial moment in your career when you're trying to make that decision between academia and industry and, and really acknowledging that uh, a lot of crucial discoveries come out of biotech. And I'm wondering at that time what sort of the early biotech landscape was like. I mean, now you go to Cambridge or, or Kendall Square and you throw a rock and you can hit 300 biotechs, right? Um, just the the number of companies that exist and the amount of innovation that's going on now uh, is immense. But uh, I'm wondering how it was different back when you started.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There was um, certainly there were fewer companies back then, right? There were fewer entrepreneurs um, because there were fewer examples of success, right? There was Genentech and Amgen, Um you know, biogen companies like that who had been successful in the very early days of genetic engineering. Um, and then, you know, when I grew up in biotech, it was really the second, it was kind of the, 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 the second wave of biotech companies. So, um, Exelixis was part of that. Um, Affymetrix was part of that. Nectar was part of that, uh, in its earliest incarnations. Um, so, um, you know there there was a little bit of a small boom that happened of course booms are always followed by busts but um you know at the time there were a couple of technologies that were advancing that were really remarkable one of them was the ability to engineer and humanize antibodies so in the past people had taken mouse antibodies and kind of done their best to make them useful and then um you know companies like uh, metarex which was eventually acquired by bms Uh, Diax, There were some others, Genentech, of course, who got to be good at making antibodies that you discover in mouse, making them more relevant to use in in humans. That was really powerful. The other thing that was powerful was microarray analysis. Um, You know, when I talk about papers that really got me excited, the first one that I can remember about that was from a company called Affimax, which was the precursor company of Affymetrix, who had microarrayed peptides uh, onto slides. And then suddenly you can think about combinatorics, and it's one of the reasons proteins and nucleic acids are so seductive is that they're repetitive, you know, they're, they're sequences with a defined structure. It's not like you have to have a, uh, a representative sample of 10 to the 200th small molecules to screen, right? There's, a, there's not that many combinations. So the, uh, the idea that eventually grew out of that peptide microarray was the affymetrics of uh, uh, nucleic acid arrays which were really revolutionary and kind of changed how we all think about gene analysis. Those kind of things were really powerful. And, um, of course at the time it was, it was like science fiction. When, when you heard about it, you couldn't kind of couldn't believe it. Um, but definitely a smaller environment. I mean, you know, there were probably, you know, I probably talked to five or six companies in my job search, uh, in, in biotech and, you know, now you would do a biotech job search. You'd probably, talk, you'd probably contact a hundred companies, or you think about starting one yourself. Right?
0: I remember uh, we saw a talk that you gave here when you came to visit us at Hawkins, talking about try to recon- try to find those protein interactions and and proteins that maybe they have, you know, like an extracellular um, function, and then how to transform that to um, to a therapy. And so I would like to hear now about about that work um hear about all of this amazing space of protein engineer itself
1: yeah um it's been amazing uh, over the last 20 years or so to see how that field has evolved and primarily one of the things that's been really exciting is the combination of um computational tools and robotics uh the ability to do medium to high throughput screening of different protein variants. Um, with the ability to predict, predict which of those variants might be useful using uh, uh, using computational methods is really exciting. I mean, I, I started engaging with that kind of work at a company called Zencore, which is in Southern California, still still exists quite successfully. And, um, you know, there we were using the computational tools initially simply to ask the question, I, you know, if, if I want to change, uh, I, I know a protein structure, if I want to change that, Uh, some amino acids in that structure, most of those variants won't fold correctly. And that means they're useless to me. So how do I eliminate all of those, right? If I can eliminate 95% of the possible variants, then I can focus on the ones that have a chance of having the characteristics that I want. Um, It's much more complicated than that, but that's the the management level view of of how that works. And we, um, we use that technology for a couple of different Uh, projects that I think were really quite, quite innovative. Um, And most notably, um, we, we use that to alter the constant domain of the heavy chain of monoclonal antibodies. And the idea there was, there was some new science at the time uh, out of Jeffrey Ravitch's lab that showed that um, the FC gamma receptors, which don't bind to the front end of the antibody, they don't bind to the antigen part of the antibody, they bind to the the tail of the antibody, that those are really important in the immune response and really important particularly for natural killer cells to recognize, and other types, cell types, to recognize um, cells that are targeted for destruction, whether tumor cells or, or infected cells. And we reasoned that if we increase the affinity for some of those activating receptors by changing the, you know, by engineering that C domain itself, that we might be able to really make a, a difference in efficacy of anti-cancer antibodies. The other thing we recognized was that if we change the affinity for uh, the recycling receptor for monoclonal antibodies, we might be able to get greatly extended half-life. That turned out to be correct as well. So we managed to execute that, and then people who followed me at ZenCore have done a fantastic job there. That company is one of the more successful engineering companies around. Um, of you know, uh, using that kind of technology, that there are lots of technologies to to change proteins. The question is, what do you want to do? <laughs> right? That's the hard part. Is what's the most valuable thing to do? Because across our entire industry, what we're good at is we're really good at finding drugs that will inhibit a target or activate a target. actually really good at that. What we're terrible at is picking what the right target is for any given disease. We really just don't understand human diseases well enough. And animal models simply don't are are insufficient currently. So uh, consequently that's, you know, that's one of the big challenges um, for all of drug discovery, whether it's small molecules or, or proteins. So, you know, we, we uh, engaged in another project recently in my work at Nectar, um, where we um, looked at the cytokine IL 2. So, interleukin 2 is one of the oldest cytokines um, in terms of its discovery, it was discovered first. And um, it has pleiotropic functions. In, in some contexts, uh, it activates the immune system, in other contexts, it uh, suppresses the immune system, the T cell response uh, arm of the immune system. And consequently, what we reasoned was that we might be able to use a, a variant of IL-2, if we could use it to be better at activating and worse at inhibiting T cell responses, we might be able to use it to treat cancer. If we could use it to be better at suppressing the immune response, engineer it in some way to make it uh, the, the less, uh, more suppressive and less activating, we might be able to use it to treat autoimmune disease. And uh, both of those turned out to be interesting projects that proceeded quite far. The cancer idea uh, was terrific right up through phase two clinical trials uh, in a totally shocking result turned out to not work in phase three. This is something that happens to us a lot. That's what I just meant when I was talking about, um, you know, uh, we don't understand enough about human disease. Um, And uh, so it was a great idea that turned out to be not. So not as useful as we had hoped. Um, that could be a function of the specific engineering job that we did, or it could be a function of the idea that maybe IL-2 just isn't that valuable in that context. It does look quite good in the, the other variant that we made was to to uh, suppress immune response. And that looks quite a bit more, uh, 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 looks quite good right now. That's again in phase two trials, we'll see. Uh, you know, It's not over till it's over. Um, but um, you know, there's there's a you know I think a general concept here that proteins are evolved to do functions inside the body that are sometimes very localized, um, highly specific. They're quite context dependent, and our goal is to make those into drugs that will be somewhat context independent and useful if we deliver them generally. We deliver them systemically, so. Um, I think one of the great unsolved problems as yet in protein engineering is how do we concentrate proteins at the site of disease where they can be and make them active at that site and have them be inactive in the rest of the body? That's that kind of idea of smart pharmacology, I think, is people are working on it very hard, but it's somewhat of an unsolved problem yet. And that's maybe the next big step uh, for us is making pharmacology work where the disease is and not work anywhere else.
0: Yeah. Talking about... Um, the, this IL-2 space now um, so the regulation thing that, that we would do with Nectar like was one approach but I can see that there are so many other different approaches for IL-2 like people is very focused in IL-2 itself and it's, w- why is it like there are other cytokines that we know that also have different roles right like there is not only one cytokine in the tumor microenvironment or one cytokine that is involved in autoimmune diseases um, and what is your perspective
1: there? Yeah Gustavo that's a great that's a, a really insightful question so there are a couple of things that impinge on that. Why is everybody fascinated by IL-2? There's a couple of reasons. First of all, I have a very strong opinion about the immune system, that if you're going to work on cytokines, you work on the ones with the low numbers. The low numbers means they were discovered first. That means they're the most important, probably. Right? Uh, we discovered them with tools that were available in the 1970s or the 1960s. Right? Um, so that means they probably have pretty strong effects. IL-2 is that kind of molecule. Um, Secondly, IL-2 was the first cancer immunotherapy drug. So it was approved in like, you know, I don't know, 30 years ago as a treatment for melanoma. Um, It was a terribly hard drug to administer because it has terrible, quite severe side effects that are related to that pleiotropic nature that I talked about before. So native IL-2, even though we didn't really understand that it had multiple functions, we still used it as a drug. So that lay fallow for a very long time until cancer immunotherapy came back into vogue. And um, with the discovery of the anti-PD-1 and anti-CPLA-4 antibodies, which were actually quite remarkably, uh, you know, remarkable insights um, that certainly are going to lead to, you know, to, to tremendously broad use of those drugs. So, you know, at, at the time, IL-2 was kind of in the backwater and nobody really thought about it much. And I, I, I give our team credit at Nectar that we had a very insightful scientist who said, hey, you know, we can actually tweak IL-2 a little bit using our pegylation technology and hopefully we can make it we can make it more activating and less suppressive. And that means we don't have to dose it as much and we can avoid the side effects. Well, that turned out, to be remarkable uh, in phase one and phase two, when we combined the uh, bempeg was the name of the nectar drug, uh, we combined that with an anti-PD-1, we had this unbelievable result in phase, phase two, um, maybe literally unbelievable now that we see the phase three results, but we saw really remarkable, remarkable results. And that stimulated a huge resurgence of interest in um, IL-2 as a, as a therapy. There are lots of ways to change IL-2 Engineer it to do what you want it to do. We had picked a particularly challenging um, approach using releasable polyethylene glycol chains, and and maybe in retrospect that you know, it might have been a little bit too complicated for us to you know maybe maybe would have been might have been better off with a more straightforward amino acid change. Um, but nonetheless, people are now working on those, and um, you know I think it'll be very interesting to see. Is it was the failure of the nectar drug? because we made the wrong engineered molecule and that the pathway is still really good and that someone else is going to unlock that. I hope that's the case. Um, or is it just a not a good idea in the context of anti-PD-1 inhibition, you know, a PD-1 inhibition, maybe there's just, uh, you know, you don't need IL-2 anymore. That's possible as well. We have to acknowledge that our hypothesis might be wrong, right? We're scientists. But, um, you know, I think... Um, uh, uh, there's a guy named Peter Kolchinsky, who wrote a really interesting article in the aftermath of the phase three failures of, of BEMPEG, uh, who said, look, you know, the, the reason if there's an IL-2 drug that emerges, the reason that we did it, you know, the reason that people will have pursued it is because Aldous Lucan, the original IL-2 drug, and then the nectar drug, BEMPEG, kind of led the way and shown a light. And now we can see some lights of where to be and some lights of where not to be. So, uh, you know, I think that's kind of the history of IL two up till now. I'm really excited that in the next couple of years we're going to see some of these other engineered variants emerge into the clinic, and understand uh, you know what what their value is.
2: Yeah, Peter uh, was actually a previous guest on the podcast, um, and uh, he he published something recently in his blog um, about the IL two space and and the impact that Nectar had had. Um, circling back to the idea of kind of unbelievable phase two uh, that, that results in uh, maybe a disappointing phase three result. What lessons did you learn about sort of clinical trial design? Um, How, how do we design good trials in a, in a really, in the most broad way? I mean, you, I think have a really great 10,000 foot view uh, from the perspective of management. Um, What, what are those key things that you think about? When, when really um, putting together a, a solid clinical trial?
1: Yeah. Um, well, this is, a, I think, a, 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 a clear example of a case where we had great phase two results and then terrible, like a complete failure in phase three. And I don't think we'll ever understand really why. Right. Is it so uh, lots of things seem possible. First of all, uh, you know, it, uh, at the time that we ran the phase two studies, uh, there wasn't a, a there wasn't a negative control. Yeah, you know, we didn't we didn't run um Bempeg plus uh, an anti PD one versus just the anti PD one. We could have done that, but we elected not to. Uh, at the time, it kind of wasn't the way people ran clinical trials. But I think you know there was a, a notable, sim- notably similar result that happened from a company called Insight, uh, who had worked on um, inhibition of IDO, which is an enzyme that's important in the uh, T cell compartment of, uh, of the immune system. And um, they had had a very similar kind of result. They had really notable phase two results got into phase three and blew up in phase three. So, you know, I think uh, that's the last time I'll run an uncontrolled phase two trial. (laughs) I can tell you that, Um, we'll be signing up for that again. Uh, So I think that that was important. Secondly, in retrospect, we had some, um, you know, we had some manufacturing issues that we talked about in public you know, During the, during the um, later part of the phase two development of the, of the program, you know, in retrospect, we might have been better, we, we made some control changes to the process, and maybe we would have been better off to have run another phase two study to make sure that the material still was acting the way we thought it was. At the time, the phase three had already started. So it's actually kind of difficult. It's a difficult ethical conundrum to terminate a study like that or to run something in parallel. Uh, so we we elected not to do that. Um, but but maybe, you know, maybe in retrospect that would have been a better idea. Um, so I think, you know, the I, I think the key is don't rush through phase two to get into phase three to shorten your time to the market. And this is a very difficult lesson for biotech management teams because this is the thing everybody's, it's what you're it's what you're there to do is to make medicine. Right. <laughs> and it's what your shareholders think you're there to do is to make medicine and, and have the company be successful. So the idea of spending another year in phase two is very frustrating and, and is very hard to it's a hard decision to make. But again, I think in retrospect, we probably would have been better served to have uh, to have done that uh, probably would have saved, saved, we might have saved a lot of effort, uh, at the end, but that's a, you know, it's a, it's another lesson. And I think it's a lesson that the big farmers know better than the small companies. On the other hand, the big farmers don't have to be successful next year. They don't run out of money, right? Uh, if you're in a biotech, you've got, you know, a certain amount of money left in the bank. You don't, you know, you want to go as fast as you can go. And sometimes that leads to tripping over yourself. Um, we would like
0: to get your, you know, your inputs in, in, how do you start from, from an idea? And then from there, you know, what are the things that those concepts that you need to take in account when you, um, want to start your own company and then how, how do you take in the logical path that then at the end will become like a full, you know, big program?
1: You know, it's a, it's a key issue, uh, that any, uh, entrepreneur has to, has to face, right. Is, is what's you know what what can i uniquely add to the universe of biotechnology right what what can i uniquely do and um so i think there's a couple of questions one is is uh, is your idea you know truly truly original you're the you're the right one and you're the right one to do it right people to execute it um is it broadly useful or are we talking about a single drug Right. I mean, there are two different kinds of small companies. There are platform companies and there are, are, are molecule companies. Um, the the funding environment, there's a pendulum in the in the venture capital funding environment that swings back and forth. And sometimes it's in vogue to have a single molecule kind of company or a, a you know a, a small pipeline, get it into the clinic, show sure that it works or it doesn't work, and then, then we know the answer. And platform companies, where my my idea is broadly useful and I can improve the the, the discovery of a bunch of uh, molecules. You know, I think um, so you have to consider is is the idea you know novel and is it useful? Both things have to be true, right? It has to be useful. I think it's important to recognize the nature of drug development here. So there's a part of this whole process that can be improved pretty dramatically and made. Uh, and made more rapid. And that is the discovery and to a certain extent, the preclinical development of new drugs. I can discover them faster. I can discover better molecules faster. I can eliminate bad ones sooner. All those things are true. And uh, and there are lots of different technologies where we and that's generally where young entrepreneurs uh, that are coming right out of uh, 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 out of academia. That's usually where people focus, because that's where your work is. Right. That's where your research is. The challenge is for the for the organization for the company is now I get into the clinic and suddenly suddenly I've built a Ferrari and now I'm in a traffic jam, right? I've got um, a clinical trial um, environment that's you know primarily dictated by the FDA and it's not going to be disrupted by somebody's new idea, right? I mean, you uh, maybe. Over a period of a decade, you can change that. You you can influence how clinical trials are run, but that's not what companies do, right? So, consequently, I think the goal of any new venture has to be: I'm going to. It's good to shorten the time to the clinic, but what's most important is to increase the probability of success in the clinic. Because right now, you know, if you think about it, any given project that we start in you know across the entire big pharma to biotech kind of range of companies, any project that we start, and, you know, I pick a new target and I say, I'm going to make a, a new inhibitor of that target and I'm going to treat blood pressure with it, high blood pressure with it. Well, that has about a 5%, maybe lower probability of, of getting of success success as defined by a successful drug that gets marketed and used out in the world. Um, well, that's a, you know, that's crazy. If we worked in the automobile industry and 5% of the cars that we made didn't run, that, I, what are we doing, right? But that gets back to this function of we don't understand diseases very well enough. So I think one of the big nuts to crack for the small end of the biotech industry, because pharma is not going to figure it out, is um, how do we understand diseases better so that we can pick our targets and pick our drug candidates better. That's a huge, a huge issue for the field. So, you know, I think to come back to this idea of a platform company versus a small company, we can talk more about the business strategies that are behind those kinds of organizations. But, um, you know, I think that the key always has to be, I I would encourage anybody who's thinking about, like, I'm gonna found a new company. What what are you doing? Like, keep your eye on the ball for the, the, the goal is to treat patients. That's our goal. Our goal here is to make new medicine. It's a noble undertaking. It's worthy. It's worthy of our attention and our energy. But keep your eye on the ball, right? We're not here to make a new microarray microarray, uh, technology. We're here to make a medicine at the end. And how am I going to improve that prospect? That's the goal.
2: It's interesting when you talk about sort of finding your niche in in that um, thing that you're uniquely uh, good at in the biotech space, have you seen any trends towards going after kind of the long tail of rare diseases? Um, because trying to target uh, an existing indication that might be kind of competitive and you, you think that you have your uh, unique advantage, um, it's different than going after a high unmet need rare disease where maybe up until now it, it wasn't uh, really possible to target that specific indication.
1: Yeah, there are, uh, you know, there's been a big wave of those companies that focus in those areas uh, in the last decade or so, um, specifically rare genetic diseases, because it, it gets to be a little bit easier to, not always trivial, of course, but a little bit easier to understand the pathophysiology of disease when you, when you know there's a, a single gene mutation that causes it right now suddenly i I, now i can focus right um if we think of diseases like type 2 diabetes they're incredibly complex right metabolism is an unbelievably complicated uh situation that's influenced by environment and diet and all kinds of stuff but you know cystic fibrosis we know what causes cystic fibrosis okay uh, not necessarily a rare disease, but um, but certainly we know what causes it. And so that makes it kind of easier to understand, maybe a higher probability of success. And I think what was recognized as well is that there's a, there's a, a decent business proposition for some of those diseases. Because if I can make kids with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, uh, you know, if I can make them able to walk uh, or if I can make CF patients live for, you know, a normal lifespan... I've, I've made a huge, huge uh increment in progress. And if I can do that, I can actually start to start to the insurance industry will support a very high price for those kinds of therapies. Even though there aren't that many patients, the outcomes can be very remarkable. So I think that's a huge um, you know, it's a big opportunity. One thing that happens is that those kinds of opportunity get saturated pretty rapidly. And so there are a bunch of companies now that chase those. And um uh, you know, that's an important. Uh, important thing to consider as well. It gets back to the you know what's your unique insight uh, question.
2: Yeah. So swinging back the pendulum to talking about platforms, um, you know, thinking about a platform company, you know, obviously there's utility in the platform, and whether that is kind of priced into however the biotech company is valued to private or public investors uh, is up for debate. But but the utility in a platform is that. You could have focus on specific clinical programs and maybe you're a small biotech company that has money to take uh, one or a few of those programs forward. But there could be interest from other partners, maybe big pharma partners in, in other uh, drugs or, or entities that are spun out of your platform. Can, can you talk us through some of the other benefits of, of platform companies and and how you've come across that in your experience? Thanks.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's uh, you know it, it's the way to develop uh, a platform company. It's emerged as kind of the model for how you do this: is um, you, um, you know, you you have some part of your work that you protect and is your own pipeline. But in order to fund that work and to continue pushing it forward, you want to raise non dilutive capital, uh, and you do that by partnering other other projects, and that partnering. Uh, you know, that that partnering environment, you know, it changes, goes up and down, it's, you know, in, in, in or it's out. But, um, you know, that can be really, uh, really powerful And the way it's typically in implemented. There's a thousand ways to make deals. So I don't mean to paint with a broad, too broad a brush here, but the way it's typically implemented is that. You know, we'll, uh, biotech A will have a platform um, that's useful in oncology and maybe it's useful in uh, metabolic disease and maybe it's useful in a couple of, you know, in the, in the CNS, who knows. Um, well, I'm going to work on oncology for myself, but I'm going to take my, my metabolic disease program, which I, where I know I can't really develop a diabetes drug or a high blood pressure drug. I'm not going to be able to do that, uh, to afford to do those kinds of large trials. So I'm gonna take that to a pharma company. I'm gonna say, let's partner on this. And if it's sufficiently persuasive and compelling, uh, then the pharma company would pay an upfront payment of some kind. Sometimes they'll take an equity stake in the company. Um, they will they will typically support research, uh, pay for the, the employee and uh, reagent costs of running the program. And then uh, there'll be uh, what are called milestones. As the pro- if the programs progress, I get paid a milestone. If it goes into different clinical trial phases and whatnot, and then typically you'd expect some kind of small royalty on the far end of uh, of the program, where I get you know I don't know two to five percent. It depends on whether you discovered the actual drug or whether you helped discover a target or something like that. But I'll get a get a royalty on the far end, and those are very very classic ways of trying to develop the company, right? It's like, uh, it's like bootstrapping your company where eventually you want to get rid of all those collaborations. You want them to be successful, but you don't want to keep doing them because you want to be working on your own pipeline. Um, but it's a very important kind of mid stage, um, way to develop a platform, uh, platform company. And, uh, you know, those, those, uh, Collaborations can be very successful and lead to multiple drugs. They can be unsuccessful, and, uh, you know. But one of the best things that can happen is if you develop um, a technology that is useful among many drugs, and then doesn't require more research. So, for example, I'm thinking of the work we did at ZenCore, where um, the the uh, company has succeeded in. Um, engineering the fc part of antibodies well you can attach the fc part of an antibody to anything right any any monoclonal and suddenly now it's like a plug and play sort of thing you know uh, where the technology can be added to multiple different antibodies without any more effort just a licensing effort uh that can be really powerful and i think it's been extraordinarily they've done a great job at that company in uh in evolving the company into into a real uh real powerhouse using that kind of approach. So there's multiple ways to do it. It's, it's always, I think, it's always in the mind of people that are doing platforms is I need to get validation from the outside world. If, a pharma, if Amgen comes and does a deal with me, that's great. That means Amgen thinks what I'm doing is smart. That's a very important message for your investors. Also, they're paying me money. I don't have to go out and raise another round of uh, of dilutive financing. That's important as well.
0: How is it about like, being in a in board um, and you know so much the science and all of it, but that once you transition to, to that position, are you still involved in it or it's just not anymore the case?
1: Yeah, um, so the board of directors is really a different, you know, it's a different entity in a, in a, in a corporation. And, uh, you know, are you still involved in the science? Well, not if you're doing it right. Um, you know, the, the job of the board is oversight um, of the, uh, of the organization and making sure that the strategy is correct and that the overall decision-making seems, uh, seems to be correct. And, you know, when you think about what a board does, you know, it, it, of course, in every board meeting, uh, that I've been involved in, there'll be some scientific discussion and we'll, and we'll talk about science, of course. Right. But there's no, there. You know, there, there's almost no possibility that I would sit on a board and say, "Look, you guys really have to do this project," uh, or, or, you know, or or I'm going to fire the CEO or whatever. Like that kind of stuff is, would be crazy, right? So. It really, um, you know, board. You have to be kind of careful with boards of directors. Uh, what, you know, be careful what you what you ask for, right? Because what you end up with is a high level business strategy discussion. You know, it, it, should the company set itself up to be acquired? Does it really make sense for us to be pursuing this market versus that market? Really, it's a business administration model. And is the CEO the right CEO for the company? That's the fundamental question for the board. Um, you know, this the scientific questions are much more influenced by you know, especially in small companies, by scientific advisory boards. And now they're just advisors, right? Um, the, the, ultimately, the decisions get made by the you know the the management team of the company, uh, driven primarily by the chief chief scientific officer or the VP of research, um, and then and by their teams, right? Because what you can't do in a in a company is is stymie the scientists that you've hired to execute your your research those people all are going to have good ideas they might not all have good ideas but a lot of them are going to have good ideas and you don't want to squash that you have to always have to have a little bit of uh, a a former boss of mine used to call it the sandbox you always have to have a little bit of sandbox where you've got five or ten percent of people's times that they can just kind of pursue some interesting ideas and see what they come up with because you never know what's going to happen that's where the good ideas come from they don't typically come from the CEO being brilliant or the CSO being brilliant. They come from some somebody smart and innovative inside the organization, comes up with a good idea, and then the management team recognizes that it's a good idea. So that's where the ideas usually percolate from. They almost never come to the board of directors, almost never.
0: You talk about um, the business. I mean, we're talking about management. You talk about the science. It just kind of very like, this is maybe a, bit of a random question, but what do you read
1: every day, Steve? <laughs> um you know twitter uh no i'm kidding of course <laughs> um you know I, I so during the pandemic of course i've been fascinated by uh the rapid response to covid um and uh, to the extent i've been doing scientific reading i've been reading a lot of virology uh it's it's it's, always, it's been an area of interest for me but not an area of uh, expertise at all and i've been shocked by how fast the therapeutics and the vaccines were developed in that field so it's really fun to kind of read about that um yeah, i don't read a lot of business administration kind of stuff i those dates were a little bit a little bit in my past you know i, I don't have to lead large groups of people anymore it's just me and my dog and my wife here at, at uh at, at kikili holo headquarters um so uh, and then i read a lot of the news you know i read the economist every every week and uh Uh, uh, and those kind of things I check on the New York times in the morning, make sure that, uh, nothing terrible happened overnight, or if it's something terrible happened, at least it's not affecting my, my local neighborhood. Um, so, (laughs) but science is still my, uh, is still my love. I tend to read more review articles than, uh, than I read, um, fundamental scientific papers anymore. I will admit to that
2: more nature biotechnology reviews than nature medicine.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly, yeah.
1: exactly, and uh, sometimes that'll lead me to something interesting. The other thing is, of course, when that, when I'm involved in consulting for companies, um, I do a little bit of digging into that, and that keeps me uh, keeps me conversant, which is fun.
2: Yeah, it's probably a good chance for us to kind of uh, ha- have a little bit more of a um, broader discussion about what you're most excited about in the future of biotech, uh, any specific targets, uh, you know, your heart is always in protein engineering, but, but what are the fields that really interest you and, and what do you think is, is yeah. most exciting on the cutting edge?
1: Yeah. Great, great question. I'm, I'm still, uh, so uh, in no particular order, I'm still super excited about the prospect for using cytokines as drugs. Um, you know, we've, we've done a little bit of that in the past. I think we scratched the surface, despite the fact that we stubbed our toe with, uh, with Benpeg. Um, I'm excited about controlling the immune system in some way uh, whether it's to activate the immune system to kill tumor cells or infections or whether it's to suppress the immune system in case of autoimmune disease i think in particular when i think about the immune system the idea of regulatory t-cells are really exciting so these are cells that when i was a student we didn't even think they existed like you know they called them suppressor t-cells and and they were in the tinfoil hat kind of uh theory of immunology no one really thought they were. they 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 existed only only a handful of people. It turned out they were the, the, that handful of people with tinfoil hats were right all along. And in fact, there were suppressor T cells. We now call them Tregs, and the ability to amplify and control those seems really powerful in T cell mediated autoimmune disease. There are a lot of autoimmune diseases um, that range from uh, you know type one diabetes to lupus to uh, you, you know you name it that are really hard to treat and they're treated with very difficult medicines. And th- that seems like an area that I think is really, um, right for, for, uh, for some revolution. Um, you know, I think I, I like the idea of cell engineering, uh, primarily that's been executed with CAR T cells. Um, but the idea of somehow making cells, I'm not sure that CAR T's are exactly the right, um, you know, the right, they're the right entry point, but I wonder about um, for example, can we engineer cells to produce um, produce our protein drugs so that we get giving cells to patients rather, and that they're lasting for years rather than giving a, giving them an infusion once a month? That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, I think the 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 most the most exciting work is work that's going to happen one step at a time in relative obscurity, which is figuring out how diseases actually work in humans. Like what is causing the underlying diseases? How do we, how do we understand the difference? We, we sometimes lump diseases into a big pool and then it turns out there were multiple things all along. I think type two diabetes is probably like that, what we call the metabolic syndrome. There's probably a lot of different diseases that are lumped in there. And how can we tease those apart and figure out how to treat each one? I think is really critical because when we look at making medicines, that's the thing we're terrible at is understanding the disease uh, at the beginning. Yeah. I appreciate
2: your emphasis on understanding the human biology and not just the drug development target drug interaction um, part, part of biotech.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're really, we're really good at making new drugs. I mean, uh, you know, if we've got a target target, based drug discovery, you know, has had some, really notable um successes uh, you know certainly the um the statins are you know kind of the prime initial example even though statins work a different way than the inventors thought they did nonetheless uh, at least they were target-based um all of the drugs that control hiv now and have turned hiv into a chronic disease um uh are uh target-based drug discovery uh success stories um you know um but it's picking the targets and, you know, that we know the successful ones because they became medicines and patients got treated. Um, the, the failures Mm -hmm. are the ones that are frustrating.
2: Yeah. I, I think we want to close out the rest of our time by talking about something that we know is, is important to you. And, and we think it's a really, uh, kind of noble and valuable effort. And that, that's sort of shepherding the next generation of biotech founders and, and you seem to put a lot of emphasis on, on, you know, emboldening people to go out and start companies, and you know, take their ideas and and make them into uh, clinical discovery and and foundational medicine. So, can you uh, talk to us about your efforts and in, in doing that, and and really, you know, why you've sort of taken that role and later
1: in your career? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think that. Um, you know, for, for my whole career, I, I, it, you know, it turns out that when you get into drug development, when you get into the stage of drug development, companies are typically run by old people, people like me, um, and that's with good reason, right? Uh, there are, uh, there's a lot of clinical development that is based on regulatory strategy, and that's an experience-based game where the rules don't change, and you can't really disrupt it. So having 20 years of regulatory affairs experience is super powerful for a head of regulatory affairs. It, you know, you're not going to come out of graduate school and suddenly revolutionize that. So in development stage companies, that tends to be more important. But, um, you know, you got to harness the energy of, of, of youth and the innovation of youth in, in inventing new things and having new insights. Um so the goal always, you know, my goal as a manager was always you hire the best young people that you can find, you know, and you give them a little bit of freedom to do some stuff that you might think is a little bit crazy. And then you have to recognize good ideas when you see them. So, you know, how does that work in the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial setting? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, um, you know, be, be fearless, you know, if you've, if you've got a good idea, figure out how to convince people that it's a good idea. And you have to think about the kinds of things we talked about earlier in the episode. Was is you know, is it unique? Is it important? Am I fixing a problem that needs solving? Um, and can I convince other other people of that? Because you're going to have to convince some, you know, some uh, financial backers to, to, to get going. It's always a good idea to have a... Um, you know, if you can figure out a way to monetize the company and the invention early on so that you can kind of sell, like, for example, selling picks and shovels instead of trying to discover drugs right off the bat, that's a good way to build kind of build confidence in the technology and build confidence in your team. Um, I think rec- it's important that young entrepreneurs recognize that biotech industry is not like the tech industry where you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is still the CEO of Meta, right? Um, that's typically not what happens in, in biotech. You found a company, you're the CEO for a while, or you're the head of research or whatever. And then at some point, the company gets to be really big and it turns into one of those development stage, kind of, you know, more of a dinosaur kind of company where the investor, uh, you know, the board brings in a more experienced management team. That happens, it's okay, right? So, um, The idea that you start your first company on isn't going to be the last good idea you have, I promise you. It probably isn't the best idea you're ever going to have. So we see a lot of serial serial entrepreneurism uh, in biotech. And I think that's really powerful. Right. Especially for a young entrepreneur. I come out of I come out of uh, grad school or my postdoc. I found something new. Maybe I spent a couple of years working for a biotech company. So I get my feet wet. Then I found something new. I get it started. if it's successful, I'll inevitably lose control of it. Either that's okay, I've checked my ego at the door and I just want the company to be successful and I want to be part of that. Or I say, well, okay, that's cool. I'll go, you know, like let's bring in bring in the, uh, the next team and I'll go do another one because I've got another idea. And this happens a fair amount and it's not just young people of course um you know uh, the um um i worked uh when i worked at five prime therapeutics our, our founder rusty williams you know quite a visionary guy um had founded a company before he uh had uh, been the head of research at uh, research and development at chiron corporation and then founded this company five prime and then eventually you know he uh, got Moved on to his next thing, and now he's the this, this CEO of another another venture that he's found. Even though Five Prime was inordinately successful, so this happens a lot. Um, and um, you know, don't uh, don't don't be afraid to to fail. It's way better to succeed, of course, <laughs> but don't don't be afraid uh, don't be afraid to fail. Um, I think that the extent to which I try to help people who are starting out in this area is. Just getting them to kind of understand what, you know, like, what are the details of the universe they're acting in? How do they deal with potential partners? How do they deal with the boards and stockholders and venture capitalists and things like that? Uh, Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. That's okay. That's how entrepreneurs are. You know, we're all that way. We're scientists too, right? So sometimes you listen, sometimes you don't. But I try to just make sure that people have some good advice because it's something that you can't, you don't really get a lot of right and sometimes you know like you, have you it, it, it's just helpful to have somebody say have you thought about this or that like maybe that maybe you want to move in this direction that might be a really good idea or maybe you need to explain this more clearly because i'm not understanding it or you know a, a venture capitalist might not understand it so you know what i i've i've always felt that to kind of wrap up my thoughts here you know there are two things that are good in. in that I've felt really good about in my career. One is making medicines is important and it's valuable and it's a benefit to society. It's worth doing. It's a noble undertaking. Secondly, um, you only get to do that once or twice in your whole life that you make a new medicine. Almost never happens. And for and for some people who are really successful, it doesn't happen at all. Um, so, what else is a benefit about our industry? Our industry allows a really strong, good way for our tribe of people, our science, you know, scientists, biologists and medics, um, to execute science in a way that benefits society and gives them like kind of a a stable way to be scientists. Um, I think that's really important because otherwise we built an academic community that can't continue to expand at the rate that it needs to expand. So, this is a way for scientists to have a, a chance to do other stuff and to be scientists in a different context um, that I think is really, is really powerful and really beneficial to our community. So that's what I, that, that's what kind of drives me in that regard.
0: Um, Thank you for, for, you know, taking this time to be with us. And thank you for, you know, giving all of this knowledge that I'm sure is going to be very useful for our listeners. And yeah. And like really, really big, thank you. Well.
1: Well, it's been my great pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Gustavo, Joe, it's been great talking to you, and I hope we get a chance to talk again.
0: Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media, at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter, for updates about upcoming guests, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I am Gustavo Carrizo. I'm Joe Berelli. Thank you for listening.